This is Talking Ears. My name is Frank Wardinger. This is a special episode because for this one, producer Juan Vasquez and I searched high and low for this guest. We wanted to find a guest with a rich and loud musical background, a passion for sound and an unparalleled expertise in hearing science, hearing loss prevention, and music. That guest is none other than fellow audiologist, Talking Ears producer, Juan Vasquez. In this episode, we'll get to hear more about his musical background and what brought him to pursue a career in audiology. Then, eventually, and not to put too much importance into it, producing this very show. You see, we're going to be hearing a lot more of Juan's voice in the upcoming episodes, so we wanted to introduce him and his story to our listeners. During this episode, we'll be hearing musical tracks by and featuring Juan Vasquez. When I was more involved with playing in bands, and I didn't protect my hearing. You know, that's the funny thing. I actually shared this with students. My first kind of music audiology presentation for year one students. Cool. I started off with this. Now, I, I kind of wish this was the story of how did I get into audiology? Because this one, I think, would be perfect. But I'd love to think about this because I... From my recollection, this is the first time where music and audiology did combine for me. I was in high school, and it was a Tuesday. I went to go see Ronnie James Dio. And so it was an open, general, you know, open pit. My friends and I got to the very front. So I was like this, center stage. And then eventually, we got moved over (laughs) right in front of the speaker. Yeah. I didn't think anything of it. I think at that time, too, that was my fourth concert Mm -hmm. ever. First time on a weeknight, you know, on a school night. And so next day, guess what happens? The hearing screening. Oh, no. (laughs) I I was going to say you just had a ringing in tinnitus and a temporary threshold shift, but oh, no. I mean, I... It was just so funny. I just go, no, this, like, where's the hidden camera here? You know what I mean? And so how, how of all the days was it today? And so I just remember going and I just go, this is going to be interesting. There I go. And, you know, I have the long hair and all that. So they put the headphones on and it's outside. It's not even inside in a quiet room or anything. It's not even the library. It's, you know, it's just kind of outside. I see everyone doing this, right? Just raising their hand and. Put it on me. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so the gal's like, uh, can you hear me? I'm like, oh, yeah. So she, okay. Um, do you have any reason to believe why you didn't pass this hearing screening? I go, well, I went to a concert last night. And she's like, oh, okay. Okay, well, next time, you know, wear earplugs and all that. And I was like, yeah. No 14-year-old wants to hear that. Yeah. And so, so that was the first time where those two worlds kind of met. Yeah, and the thing that stands out to me, and I don't know if this is even really your point to it, but as a 14-year-old, you saw that hearing testing was this day, and you thought, well, that's a problem because I went to a concert last night. So it's intuitive, it's instinctual that you go, this is an effect on my ears that is negative. We have that instinctual yeah. knowledge, and yet we ignore it. It's so funny to me. That is funny. That's like, yeah. I didn't really think of it like that, but and yet here we are, years later, still yeah. having the same conversation with ourselves. Right. Right. It's so funny to me. Of course, I didn't think twice about it after that. 
nor did I think twice about it after the dozens of concerts that followed or the dozens of rehearsals. Or um, playing in a loud band and writing Yeah, and playing music. in a loud band, you know. I mean, we tried. You know, we, we did attempt the foam plugs. It was just something where we knew it was loud and, yeah, our ears were ringing or if we went to go yep. see... Iron Maiden on the weekend, the signature proof that you went to the show. You got a shirt for 50 bucks or something. You wore it to school on Monday. Your ears were just ringing. You couldn't hear. Your voice is shot and you have metal neck. You know what I mean? And so that was just like the badge of honor. And that's something I brought up. I go, it's not really a badge of honor. You kind of almost assaulted yourself. Yeah, you injured yourself (laughs) for the sake of rock and roll. Of course, it's so much fun, you know, and if people want to do it, yeah, that's great. But for me, it's more, you know, the, the hearing, you know, it's like, well, you don't want the ringing to be constantly going off. Tell me about kind of how you started with music. What got you into music in the first place? Yeah, I can actually tell you the exact moment that that's going oh, way nice. back. So I remember being 14, heard something that I have heard really my entire life, since I was born, really, just because that's when the album came out. But it was Metallica's Inner Sandman and the opening guitar riff, yes. I just said. It was one of those moments that I actually, where it just it struck a chord, you know, and so hit my brain and I just go, oh, that's, that's cool. I had been hearing it my whole life, you know, and I can, even hearing it now or listening to it now, I can see myself. It's almost like the sense of smell. I'm taken back to my dad's garage and he's just blasting it through his old, you know, cassette player and all. I remember the exact moment. I just go, that's, that's it. That's what I want to do. That's the instrument that I want to play too. And that's the kind of music that I go, ooh, that would be fun to do. Next birthday, I turned 14. That was when I got my first guitar. $100 acoustic Epiphone that I actually still use. It's actually still my favorite guitar. And, you know, we couldn't really afford traditional guitar lessons or anything like that. But I still kind of just got strength on my fingers and just kind of fooled around with it. When I got into high school, I did have the guitar class. So... I joined that, learned from friends, and that's what kind of started it. I started teaching. Well, that was actually kind of my first job outside of college. Mm. I taught at several different little studios where I grew up in California. It's just something I really liked doing. I'm not really one of a performer, and I don't think I ever really wanted to do that. You know, be on stage all the time and have the spotlight and everything be the next Van Halen or something like that. I think I discovered that. And I I heard it recently talked about where, you know, the point of music, education, learning an instrument. um, And I never connected this as a kid when I was learning. I thought I was learning instruments in order to like go be on stage mm-hmm. but uh the point was made that the point of music education isn't to 
promote professional work, it's to give people the ability to become masters at something. Mm. And yeah. it's so easy to become a master at an instrument that you love the sound of and that you care about and that like all the songs like you know you can master a nirvana song you can master enter sandman yeah pretty i mean for like like pretty darn easily right it's really not a hard riff to play you don't have to learn right. you only have to learn three strings to play that riff you know yeah. and the ability to learn how to master something that you love is an ability is a skill that are carry with you your whole life right, right. Uh, and serve you well in other things i agree know? so that's the point of music education i love that yeah i do too i think that's why i i still love teaching and my outlet for music through instruction and education cool so and then your your band mm -hmm. I, I i'm only really familiar with one band of yours which I'd actually be curious to find out if that's a recording project or if you think of it kind of as a live band. Currently, I would say that it's my recording project that I did with my friend from high school, Adam Preciado. I remember the exact moment when we met and from there, we just clicked. Mm -hmm. The day that we actually jammed together, I said, okay, yeah, this is, this is gonna work. started you know just a high school band and with a friend of mine and a friend of his so a mutual friend Vinnyopolis and he was our guitarist you know and then his sister learned how to play bass and they were playing the same type of music that we were wanting to do and so it was just a perfect match we had gone through a couple singers I think that's something that we never, we're good at was finding a solid singer. I think partly because we wanted someone to sound just like Robert Plant and Bruce Dickinson and Roddy James Dio and Klaus Mine. It was kind of a, a tough gig, I suppose, for some singers. And then yeah. we couldn't really, at the time, find anyone who uh, wanted to kind of do anything like that. So that's actually where the idea of doing just a strict instrumental kind of heavy metal record came into play. It's because I go, well, I couldn't find a singer anyway, so I'm just going to write music that I want to hear, uh, but without any vocal line or without any substantial or significant meaning to the song itself. For me, it was the opportunity to say, okay, this is my music. It's what it means to me. You know, if someone finds another meaning to it, great. Or if they find some connection, I go, that's awesome. I think that's what... Um, is the most important thing with any type of art. But that's actually where that came around. But anyway, we had played around in a band called Dark Matter. That was the first band that 
we had, and and then we kind of did some dark matter stuff through the years after you know everyone went to college and things like that. So it was kind of sporadic as far as how often we were able to jam or get together, and how often even Vinny and Monica were pra- even Adam too were practicing. And so, were you doing a lot of the writing yourself? A lot of it, or was it kind of a group effort? Yeah, it was. It was a mixture of everything. I think there was a lot of it was just solo composition stuff, you know, that I just worked up in my head. Sometimes Vinny and Monica had an idea and we would just bounce off of that. So we kind of shared mm-hmm. all writing parts and we were very open to collaborate and learn each other's songs and add and incorporate mm-hmm. other things. The older I get, the more I appreciate this method was Adam and I just being in the garage and we just start playing. He just start, he just went on a jam yeah. here, you know, or just kind of played something on the drums. Like, oh, that's cool. And then we just kind of felt something and it just sort of happened. It was just like a, an improvisational thing. It wasn't cool. And it just it matched when we were in rhythm, we were in time, we were in mm-hmm. sync. It was just so cool. I just loved doing that. And then just being able to be within those moments and you just come up with something. It's just... Totally. It's monument. It's just an immense feeling. And so we did share all that. I don't know if you ever heard this style, and I'm not entirely sure that I say it out loud now, but the shoegaze band. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I was at my second college, and Adam had said, Oh, hey, you go to Chafee, don't you? We're gonna actually, my shoegaze band is actually gonna be playing a little gig outside. I go, Oh, okay, well, I'll check you guys out. And I remember thinking, I go, this would be really fun to play with them, you know, because it's a different style of music and it's just a different thing. And so that's when I picked up bass a lot more. I liked that I was mm-hmm. able to not have the role or responsibility of primary songwriter, guitarist. It's a nice supporting role. I, I, I think so. Right. Yeah. And I just liked the instrument and it was a lot of fun to just kind of follow along and just jam with Adam because it was... A lot of it was just kind of that. So. You're there as a support system. Right. Versus when you're playing guitar, when you're playing lead guitar, it's like, okay, the spotlight's on you. Mm-hmm. You got to make that thing wail. You got to like really bite into that solo. Right. Um, it's a different, you know, you can forget that everything else is behind you and just be out in front. That never happens with bass. Yeah. So it's really nice to remind yourself of like how important music is kind of as a group event. Right. I think. Right. And I think that's what was so fun about that, too. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't necessarily in the spotlight. I was just in the back, just making sure everything was grooving okay. I think that there are people out there who live performance is like where they come alive and where they become like, you know, the person that you think of them. And then there's the rest of us, including me. Mm-hmm. And I think you fall into this camp, too, who we would rather not be in the limelight mm-hmm. and we would rather do... This is why I've always liked doing production. I've always liked doing live sound. I've always liked playing keyboards. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I like being the supporting role and not necessarily who people are looking at the whole time. Um, Is that kind of what drew you to doing that studio, very studio heavy bass projects like Absolute Threshold? To me, live performance, as much as I did enjoy doing it, I 
I felt that I just wasn't good at it. And mm. I just felt that I was always just too nervous. And I didn't like that feeling, I guess. So I said, well, mm-hmm. we like, we can record, you know, and I think that the records, cause that's what I think I just really enjoyed doing, especially at that time. I still do, you know, is just listening to the studio albums. You know, I think mm-hmm. that there's that part of it that is kind of timeless. And so I wanted something that, that I could have for myself. And so that's really why I did it is maybe it's a selfish thing to do it. I said, well, this is my project. This is for ourselves. You know, it's for, it's for me, it's mm-hmm. for Adam, you know? And so I think that I just really, really prefer is being in a studio because I love the process and I love the environment and you're just, you're in it. And this is, it's like, yeah, this is it. This is, we're making a record. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's it's so fun to create something and then be able to look back at it with kind of more open eyes and just to look at it and be like, oh, okay, this is how it came together. It's different from from doing it live. It's kind of like doodling. I have a friend who who calls studio work doodling. Hmm. Like we're just we're just doodling here. We're all doodling together yeah. and we're comparing notes and combining it together into a collage at the end and hmm. like, hey, look at that. We made a thing. I think that helps me understand more of like your music history kind of where you how you came up to making which for lack of a better word is like instrumental metal Mm -hmm. you know well it's very dynamic music it is but it is in parts extremely loud Mm -hmm. aggressive kind of bombastic like you said rock and roll This kind of goes to the other side of you that I know, which is the audiologist in you. Um, and in audiology, we're very often, you know, treating loudness as kind of the, not the enemy, but like something to be weary of, yeah. right? So I'm curious if you can help help me connect those two, because I have a very similar brain that, that loves the loud, but also uh, is, you know, always cautioning people yeah but you know how does how does that reconcile in your in your head i'm not sure if it does to be honest (laughs) it's just something that that's fine you know i we just we just uh you know i think pink floyd was asked that same question why is it so damn loud it's like i don't know it's just the way that we like it you know that's just how we like to express our creativity and uh, make something you know it's just Mm -hmm. something that we just enjoy doing, you know, being so influenced by so many different bands. And there's, we wanted to have a lot of light and shade and we wanted to have things that are like a jazz person. Oh, they're quoting this person. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to definitely have our influences shine through while not trying to copy. And nowadays my approach is slightly different. You know, it's been a long time since I've been in a very, very loud situation or, you know, just go through a big, powerful amplifier and just strike a huge guitar chord. (laughs) But, you know, I still love doing that. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's almost an unnatural act, you know. It's like why, you know, why be a metal guitar player, you know? And now I'm an audiologist who loves talking about hearing loss prevention. <laughs> it's just right. It's kind of interesting, but yeah. I don't know how this is going to be segue-wise, but I kind of want to ask how you got into uh, the field of then audiology, because you went to music school, you taught music, you love the guitar, and then something led you down the path towards like healthcare, hearing healthcare. Yeah. And like, what what was that? What was that? What was that thing that sparked? Really, it was it was music. You know. After music school, I'm at my third college and worked my way through community college and everything to get basically transferred into a bachelor program for music. That's what I wanted to do originally. One of my professors in music school really got me into it. I just thought that the the theory and everything behind it, all the modes and everything, all this combination of stuff, it was just fascinating to me. And so that's what I wanted to do. I didn't really... Uh, want to be a performer. You know, that's at the time, that's not something I felt that I needed to do or just, so I do the audition. So them not being contemporary school of music, it was jazz or classical guitar, you know, so which I was not um, uh, proficient at. I loved doing that style, but I, at that time I wasn't good enough. And mm-hmm. so auditioned with the jazz ensemble, didn't get in. I still attended the university, but you know, wasn't in, uh, declared the major of music, you know, at the time. So after that, I decided to take some guitar lessons for classical guitar, auditioned kind of unofficially with the heads of the classical guitar department and didn't get in again. And I was actually at a point where the university said, so you need to declare a major or we're going to kick your ass out. (laughs) So I said, well, I don't want to try all over again. You know, I've already committed so much to being at this university and I was really interested in learning different languages. So I was taking uh, American Sign Language actually for a semester of French, Italian, and Spanish I was still working on. And so, hey, well, this communicative disorders thing looks interesting. You can be a speech pathologist and blah, blah, blah. And I just go, that kind of sounds interesting. It kind of incorporates use of sound and possibly even music. I go, well, I mean, with language and music, it's, you know, you're using that part of the field, so many parts of the brain that are so similar. So I go, okay, I'll I'll check it out. So I declare that it's the communicative disorders program. Eventually, right, the senior year, that's when the audiology comes in. It wasn't until I took the in-person oral rehabilitation class where I said, yeah, the first day, within the first 10 minutes, I go, yeah, this is this is it. This is what I'm going to be. I'm going to become an audiologist. I mean, it was really just my, my love for music that just kind of propelled. Because when I took the audiology course, I just go, there's so much here, just with physics and even speech sounds. And I just go, this is all connected, you know? 
<laughs> and so I just found that I just go, there's got to be some way I can incorporate or work with musicians. It's, and, well, it's connecting both the things then that you, you know, this an interesting academic field, but it was so cool for me too to find out that, oh, there's other people who, this is what they care about is music audiology and protecting people's hearing and hearing conservation. Mm -hmm. I think what you're explaining is kind of the same feeling of like, oh, my people, hi, hi, my people. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for being here already. This is amazing. <laughs> thank you for existing because, you know, I had no idea. Yeah. It was just so cool and just, uh, it just, it was one of those things where I just go, oh man, it's when maybe life just makes sense, you know, mm -hmm. one of those moments. Mm -hmm. I just go, okay, yeah, this is. You find your people. Yeah. Kind of what made you find Hearing conservation, music audiology, you had mentioned before that one of your mentors or one of your professors in school also is very much in the music audiology world. Was that part of what kind of drove you in school? Yeah, totally. In researching and looking up what university I would want to go to, it actually turned out that Dr. Matt Bell, I looked at his bio and he was pretty much just like me. Started as a guitar player did all sorts of gigging and recording and performing and all this stuff. And so I'm going to work with this guy. Yeah. It was so cool because we instantly connected, became friends, and I actually was the one who helped him start a capstone oh, yeah. for music audiology. And so it was something that he had always wanted to do. And I said, can we please do this? You know, And he said, well, that's what we'll try. And so this is so cool. There is someone else like me that I can learn from and follow those, those footsteps, you know. lucky because I had him and so my first internship was at a private practice in Las Vegas and my second one was actually at National Acoustic Laboratory in, in Australia That's and so, cool. so I got to get a, a small glimpse at to what a research audiologist life might be like and so it was at a time where I was kind of considering doing a PhD after I got back from Australia went back to school and then shortly after that went to Chicago for the AES Music-Induced Hearing Disorders Conference. And it was right downtown. And who did I meet there? Everyone. You weren't there, but I met Michael Santucci, of course. Well, I was going to say, I, we, that might be where we first... I was at that AES convention in Chicago. The one with over at... Um, it's at Columbia College. For yeah, that. Columbia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I believe so, Yeah. I was at the third one. Maybe you were at the first one. Oh, that's right. I did go to the first one. It was really, really cool. So much fun. And then right after that, started NHCA and been going ever since. So, Yeah. And NHCA is a whole a whole other animal of, of like-minded people. And I think that's where um, you and I really got to, to chat first. And, and then this is kind of like a little bit of a backdoor conversation as far as the show goes it's a little meta to ask this but you are producing this show with me which is a huge help because this is way too big of a, a task to take on solo right i want to i want to somehow uh bridge that gap between being 
internally focused on a profession and creating something that will help speak to the general audience that we're trying to speak to. So, you know, the people who we care the most about are those musicians, um, clinically, professionally, personally. So trying to speak to mm. them. So oh, absolutely. What made you say yes when I asked if you wanted to help out with this brand new podcast? Because I, I agree. And so doing this, I feel that it's really an outlet to be able to share what we love with those who we actually care about. I love how you put it when you did the NHCA presentation with Brendan Fitzgerald. These musicians will probably be patients who you will remember the most because they do listen to you. And if you do educate them, it is something that that's tangible. I feel it in the clinic. You know, there's a mm -hmm. huge connection. It's almost like being on stage to an audience who actually wants to hear you. You're on the spotlight, so to speak. Yeah. And so that's what's so special about it. Like you said, they are so important because they are producing and releasing beautiful things into the world. And so what better to be one of their healthcare providers yeah. to ensure that they keep doing that the way that they love doing it. I, I just, I love how you put that. And so, oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember that. Thank you. That's very kind. Cause I, I do, I mean, it's super cheesy, but I think of, um, hearing conservation is a very clinical concept, but I really think of it as music conservation that we want, you know, I know all these fantastic musicians who stopped making music because they they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Their ears gave mm -hmm. out because they just were exposed to too much and now they can't make music anymore and they stopped, you know, and the world is missing their input. The world is missing their music and, and by doing what we do and, and trying to enhance the conversation and, and really be there to serve people before it becomes dire, before they have to hang up their guitar forever, to be able to give them that kind of service, that kind of care, we can yeah. make sure that they don't lose the spark or the ability to do the music because, you know, we all lose out when they stop making music. I completely agree. Yeah. <sighs> me of a patient that I saw during ENT hours. I mean, you've worked in an ENT setting before, right? Yeah, yeah. That's clinical setting, yeah. So you know how fast-paced it is. And so, um, you know, I had a kid come in, may have been 13 or so. Of course, uh, with just about every patient that I see, I say, okay, it's important to protect your hearing whenever you're in situations like then that's when he mentions oh by the way I'm in I'm in the band and I go now we're getting somewhere you know and so it was for for me it was like, okay if I wasn't there if I didn't ask that but then I spoke to him about you know a non-custom filtered plug to make sure that you know he's protecting his hearing so that way he doesn't you know get tinnitus after every band practice and so I was like so are you practicing you know inside outside how long is your rehearsal and how's your music teacher you know are they protecting their hair <laughs> you know so um, it was just one of those things where he was like oh my god like 
yes, this is exactly what I'm experiencing, right. you know. And all I did was just ask a simple question. And so, uh, but then it turned out to be such a, a wonderfully profound experience, you know. So something that the ENT wants you to be two minutes, it ended up being like 22 or something like yeah. that. I really don't remember, but it was just one of those few cases that, but I think it's just really important to to set that time aside and to properly educate and and listen. So I love music audiology for that reason, because we can meet people where they are and really have that nuanced, deep conversation. Um, totally. Where the end result is that we all understand better how to protect and how to work with your ears and to be, mm -hmm. to be respectful of your ears while doing music. I think I try to create those experiences too you know i go okay are you a musician because if they are that's when i do take the extra time for sure you know so we can sit on on clinical stuff for a little bit um and i know that you are really well versed in kind of the best practices for music audiology what is your advice then for your general audiologist when working with musicians i would say it's so important for the audiologist to to listen really critically and educate. <laughs> I think education, we can't really stress enough. I think all of us would mention that to some degree, you know, education is so important about the hearing system in general, sound exposure, time and intensity, but also teaching them how to use like the NIOSH app mm -hmm. or the sound level meter. I think that's something that can really bring in a lot of insight to the musician themselves or go to the venue, see what it's like, it's really interesting to be able to do that. It actually shows that you actually care, you know, and mm -hmm. helping them navigate something that, again, will not inhibit their performance, right? I mean, that's the most important mm -hmm. thing. And I think with some audiologists, if they have been a performer at some point or another, I think some might have an idea of it, but understanding that, you know, that you're working with a professional performer and anything that inhibits them, they're not going to accept it. Mm -hmm. So that way they are able to continue to bring out more good into the world. So like you said, I think it's this music conservation thing, yeah. um, which is really this art conservation thing, mm -hmm. you know, ensuring that we as human beings still have access to good, meaningful art. Yeah. of impact can you can you make for a person yeah. you know because i think that's the most um one of the most meaningful things that any conscious entity could ever achieve you know? yeah so you're using your you're using your gifts to uh to better somebody else's life in a way and i think there's this common misconception in uh i don't want to say just in audiology but in uh, maybe it's in audiology and the music community that um, our roles are different, that the audiology role and the musician's role are different in these situations. And this common misconception is that the average musician is going to the audiologist just for a gear thing, almost like a 
like a necessary evil step that you have to step through in order to get your inner monitors or in order to get mm. your earplugs is like, oh, and then you have to gonna go, you're gonna have to go to this other provider who has to take your uh, mold impressions. It's kind of annoying, but go take, get it done. And I, I just want to hopefully not perpetuate that and let audiologists recognize that if you do offer education and care and service and hearing tests for musicians, Mm -hmm. Um, I have been, I have yet to find a musician after the thousands that I've worked with who say, I don't want any of that. They're usually saying, mm. Ooh, Ooh, yes, please hungry. Give me more of that. Give me more of that care and education. Yeah. Once they recognize that you also care about their ears and you're not just caring about, you know, keeping your, keeping your clinic moving or, or whatever, right. whatever it may be. I think one of the most important things too, for audiologists in general is to understand their role as a a lot of times as a counselor, mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard enough for a musician to walk into the door of your clinic, you know what I mean? Because there might be this this fear. It's like, oh, I have no idea what my hearing is yeah. like. So I'm so, I mean, I was afraid to get my hearing, <laughs> you know? I think I still am. I just, I, I kind of don't want to know. Mm -hmm. But I understand how important it is and why it is. But mm -hmm. finding someone who will work with you through every step of the way and I think I, that just came up with me a couple of weeks ago. I was working with this guy. He's touring drummer, plays with a lot of A-listers. He said flat out, I don't think I want to get the hearing tests today. I don't really want to know the results. And I said, let's talk about that for a second. Why don't you want to know the results? What makes you nervous about this? And he said, well, I'm worried that you're going to tell me that I have a big problem that I can't play anymore. I said, okay. Let's talk about that for a second. What would happen if I told you, you did have a hearing loss? Would you stop playing? He said, no, I wouldn't. Okay. So what's the harm in knowing what your hearing results are? He goes, I guess there is no harm. On the flip side, what's the harm of not knowing if you have a hearing problem that we could stop from getting worse today? And he was like, can we do the hearing test today? <laughs> like uh, he came full circle thinking like, oh no, if things yeah. are this, if it's this important to me, that I don't want to know the bad results, then it's this important to me that I need to know. So that's what I mean by the general mentality is that a musician is not asking for this level of service or this level of care or hearing testing, when in truth, they aren't told that this is an option, that this level of service is an option. And and by just presenting it, most people go like, oh, please that, I want that, give me more. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever had that sort of experience like you did. A lot of time if I'm subbing at Sensophonics, everyone's there because they know what they're gonna get. Yeah, and it, it, I, I think this is something that Michael Santucci, who we've mentioned a bunch before from Sensophonics, um, has said, and maybe I'm misattributing this quote to him, but uh, whoever it is, sorry, but let's imagine that when you're born, you're handed a guitar, and that is your guitar for the rest of your life. The end. You will never get another instrument. It is the only one. It's irreplaceable. Now, how are you going to take care of that guitar? Because mm. chances are yeah. you're going to care about it a lot more and take better care of it. And that's how your ears are. Your ears are a single piece of service that is not going to be replaced ever. It's your hardware for life. Yeah. So caring about it is huge. It's a beautiful way to put it.
what sort of really gravitated me to audiology. You know, it's just this wonderful sense of hearing and sound. Yeah, you know, we're born with this. We have this, if we're lucky enough to have this incredible sense Mm -hmm. and the way it connects us to ourselves and to the world. And it's part of your consciousness, really. And so humans have developed a wonderful art form called music, and we're able to enjoy it. And for me, it it brings about memories. Like I say mm-hmm. with your music, it was the soundtrack to my to my extraship year, my first year in Illinois. You know, I I I, I played Gunsling Birds a lot. You know, just because it was the perfect. <laughs> You know what I mean? If it was a film, you know, it would be the soundtrack to this frame. You know what I mean? It's If you have a picture of yeah. me li- living life first here, you know, about to graduate, Gunsling Birds was really something that was part of it. just interesting that maybe even the lyrics to a song could match exactly what you're going through so i love that and it's not just that it works perfectly but i think a lot of times it can help someone learn about themselves practice we tried the foam plugs we knew that they didn't work you know i wish that we had that education of a filtered device non-customer custom because that would have been just amazing for us or some some sort of inner monitor system if we just even had headphones like this or studio headphones i think that would have been really really nice because i i feel that i've just abused my ears for sure and it's just something that okay i know what i did and People will probably still do that, but hey, let's just talk about the importance of your ears. You know, I mean, I I'm, I feel happy that I can still hear fairly well. And I, you already kind of answered this question, but if you had a piece of advice, you know, we already asked you for your advice to to the audiology community. Um, what would be your advice to musicians and music community, and especially those starting out? I'd say start off by getting your hearing profile checked out. Just understand where you're at. Because if you are a hearing musician, you know, like you said, you know, every instrument that you buy, you can take it to the repair. You get your strings replaced, you your drums heads, you know, you swap out. But if your primary means of actually consuming your music is through your ears, your auditory system, you know, it's such a precious and delicate system, you know. Simply just understanding it, so what can we do to protect it? You know, it's just that light bulb clicks, you know. If you find a provider who does explain it in such a way where the musician can relate to them, you know, and they relay this information and this insight, I think it's just much Mm -hmm. better for them, for sure. And so they're going to discover ways to make sure that nothing bad happens to their precious yeah. ears. You know, as Heather Melliot puts it, to the money makers. Mm-hmm. You know, those are your money makers because music isn't just a hobby, right? It's their livelihood. And it's so great that it is because you're the ones helping improve this crazy world, yeah. you know? And so I think that just with your art and everything that you're putting out it's so i think it's just uh, their music is more important than 
than they realize. Uh-huh. And then so is their hearing, you know? And so it is so cool. I feel very fortunate to be a provider to work for musicians and work with them. It, it's just so unique and it feels so good at the end of the day, just potentially making a difference. That's such a good sentiment that you're, that, that person's music is more important than they even let on. You know, it's important to the world. It's not just important to you. I mean, it is. I mean, and then being the person to educate them about their hearing and protecting that, it's just, it really is protecting their music. It's protecting, protecting all that, so. So Juan, you know, we've been asking every guest the same question, what's your favorite sound? And I'm gonna ask you now because I actually really wanna hear your answer too. So what's your favorite sound? As cliche as it is, my favorite sound is the sound of silence. And it's not like the song or anything like that. It's, um, it really is just the stillness of what I feel at that present moment on this rock flying through space in the ever-expanding universe, you know? (laughs) If I just close my eyes and just let everything be still, I love the sound of silence, whether it be outside in nature or even just in my apartment Mm -hmm. and just hear the creaking of the floors, just, and it not being distracted, my brain not being distracted. I don't have my tinnitus, just doesn't blare. I love when I can't hear tinnitus i think that's another way to put it is i love my sound of silence because i've had tinnitus and i want things to be silent sometimes you know yeah so as much as i love loud music and as much as i love having music going constantly i just go yeah silence is actually a wonderful Mm -hmm. wonderful sound or lack of sound you know i don't know i mean however you want to look at it i just love the stillness of being present and being mindful. I think it's to me, it's such a meditative sort mm. of a thing. It's almost as soothing as, say, putting on a record. That That's another one, too. I love the sound of the needle hitting the record. That's actually, if there was an actual sound, 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 it's the needle hitting mm. the record. They're both kind of the same, if you think. I mean, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's they both have that same uh, blank canvas possibilities Mm. kind of thing because you're not the first person to say that about silence that um it's not so much the literal absence it's the open possibilities of hearing the wind or hearing the floor creak or hearing like a little thing that would have gone unnoticed otherwise Mm -hmm. if we just you know covered it up and the same thing with the record drop you know, that the minute that that needle hits, anything could happen afterwards. It's an inflection point. It's so fun. Yeah, even even if you know what you're going to hear, mm-hmm. there's just that anticipation, you know, it's just that feeling. It's just, oh, yes, it's what you're about to, to hear. You know, to me, it's it's as wonderful as going to the movie theater and, you know, you just have everything's dark mm-hmm. and you have the screen there. It's just, to me, it's the sound of, an actual experience, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. 
So it's, it's just, I don't know. I feel like we just talk about experiences as things that happen, but I think with that sound, it triggers something in your yeah. brain that this is literally this mm-hmm. is happening. You're in a moment, a special moment, and how special and how unique is it to be able to live through this and to have a conscious experience? You know what I mean? To- totally, Juan. We could do this all day we could do this every week we actually do do this every week Um, thank you so much for sharing your story this has been awesome Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. The theme music is by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. Additional production and editing assistance is by Juan Vasquez and Mary Kim. Thanks for listening. Thank you.